What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Hotshot Brewery. Oh, yeah. Our official, unofficial sponsor of the Anchor Point Podcast. So, if you guys want some good coffee for a good cause, swing by www.hotshotbrewing.com. Pick yourself up some Spotfire Blend or some Scratch Line or some Night Shift Espresso. Or my favorite, their new one, the Sawdust Blend. It's good stuff. Good coffee for a good cause. And a portion of the proceeds goes back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. So, once again, check them out. www.hotshotbrewing.com. Get yourself some good coffee. Another sponsor of the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. So, head over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check them out. It's a collection of stories from wildland firefighters, both in Canada and here in the United States. And, uh, yeah, both past and present firefighters. It's pretty cool. Uh, some of these stories go back to the 1940s, and they've also teamed up with Mystery Ranch and Water Axe Pumps to facilitate some grants for our uh, bloggers, our writers, our photographers, our cinematographers out there in the field. So if you guys are interested, you guys got a cool story to tell, keep tuned to that website, wildfireexperience.org, because the announcements for the 2020 applications are coming out this winter. So check them out. Bethany, you got an awesome organization over there. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast, episode number 20. Yeah, it's been a good run so far, getting into the winter. I'm kind of enjoying my time off. Hope everybody else that has uh, been laid off, I hope you guys are doing well. And for you folks that are in Southern California, keep your head on a swivel. Looks pretty gnarly down there. Be safe, guys. Anyways, today on the show, I have got Lauren Bellinger. She is a dispatcher out of Region 2, and she's going to go and take us behind the scenes of dispatch. That's pretty cool stuff. We're going to talk about you know what goes on behind the desk at dispatch, uh, some tools to communicate a little bit better, and uh, some other stuff. So, hope you guys enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Anchor Point. Cool. So let's get this started then. Ready to send it? Awesome. Let's do it. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I have an initial attack dispatcher. Her name is Lauren Bellinger. Lauren, how's it going? Hey, good. How are you? I'm excellent. <laughs> I'm excellent. So what's going on with the world of dispatch? Well, in our area right now, not a whole lot. I'm about a week away from being laid off for the winter, so I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. Yeah, it's a, it's coming to that time. It's, you know, winter time. It's getting going, so time yep. off is well-deserved. Uh, yeah, I'm ready for it. <laughs> That's good. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Lauren. Uh, my name's Lauren Bellinger, and thank you so much. Initial attack, attack dispatcher and out of Region 2. I'm still pretty new to the game here. Um, this is my second year in dispatch. Before dispatching, I had um, a couple years in fire, but I actually started in trails. So that's kind of what got me into it. Nice. What did you do in fire? Were you uh, on an engine, crew? I did both. I did a year on a Type 2 IA crew. Um, I liked I liked the, the work a lot, um, but I kind of had some health issues and stuff, which was actually kind of why I started to transition into dispatch. Let's go into it then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's expand on that. So dispatch is an excellent opportunity for, like you are saying, someone who have maybe had some health issues or may have gotten injured in the line of duty. And it's also secondary fire, which not a lot of people know. So 
Care to explain? Yeah. So um, secondary fire for people that don't know, especially if you're kind of getting into like I am where you're trying to transition into the perm side of things. Um, Once you have three years in primary fire, so ops, you are what's called vested, at least with the federal government, which means that as long as you stay in a secondary fire or primary fire position, you get to keep your fire retirement, which is better than most other federal retirement programs, I guess, for lack of a better term. Oh, yeah. it's. uh, I think it's your three highest years and then uh, i forget what the percentage is of that but it's a pretty good retirement system that and you get oh absolutely yeah you get your tsp and all that stuff also so it's an excellent retirement system but this is an excellent option for those uh that are looking to get into the secondary fire realm and still keep your fire mm-hmm. fire retirement your furs yep <laughs> for sure nice so uh, you said you had a couple years in fire and working on type 2 IA crews and some engines. And a type 6 engine, yep. Nice. So now that's important because if you don't have fire knowledge or fire background, you're not going to make a great dispatcher. Care to explain? Correct. Yeah, so you kind of need that fire experience. I mean, and it it's funny because, I mean, obviously the more experience you have, the the more common sense kind of requests and stuff are going to, are going to be, but it's really important to have that for one to understand the terminology. Um, like you were saying earlier, so many acronyms, I mean, kind of just understanding who people are, what things are, and then, and then kind of being able to help sometimes prioritize as far as, you know, what's going to be important to the boots on the ground. I mean, I think the number one thing that I hear or that I've heard, you know, that really stuck with me when I first started in dispatch is that we're customer service. We're customer service for the boots on the ground. And and that's what we're here for. So we're here for you guys. We're here to support your needs. And if we kind of understand what those needs are or where they may be coming from, it can only help us do our job better. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think a lot of people realize that there's a lot of moving gears behind the scenes. Uh, and, And especially in dispatch, you have an IA dispatcher, initial attack dispatchers, which is like yourself, you have expanded, you have logistics, you have aviation, you have all these facets of dispatch and it's quite kind of incredible how it works. So. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, um, dispatching, yeah, there's different kind of sides of it. Um, initial attack dispatching, I'm kind of, you know, that's my day-to-day job. You know, we don't always have fires every day, but that's kind of what I'm primarily there for. Um, Expanded dispatchers aren't typically set up every day. I mean, we'll kind of all take on that role until it gets to be too much for us along with regular IA duties. And then we'll um, set up an expanded dispatch to have people that are specifically for that and, you know, larger incidents or larger scale ordering than what we can handle on the IA floor. Nice. And how do you manage the stress behind the scenes, especially with an emerging incident? How do you, how do you, uh, let me get a, an insight into your head. How do you manage that? Cause it can be stressful even on the radio. Oh, absolutely. Um, I can tell you that I've, uh, you know, kind of get tongue tied sometimes, you know, our job's all about communication, but I definitely have said, like I told someone one time during a practice scenario when we had other stuff going on that I would dump a load on them. They, they needed some retardant. <laughs> yeah, you know, you just, you kind of, your, your brain can go a thousand miles per hour. You know, I actually really enjoy it. It kind of, it, to me, it's exciting. Um, everybody handles that a little bit differently. Um, I don't find that I have such a hard time right then. It's usually the decompression kind of after it all calms down when my heart's still going a thousand miles per hour that I really kind of have that's when I kind of start dealing with that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's, it must be nice to take a breath, especially after you had like a lightning bust or something like that. Oh, oh yeah. And I mean, out West we have, I'm originally, like I said, from central Washington and you know, we get lightning there too, but seeing the insane lightning storms that come through here in our two, like, Oh my gosh, they, it's a daily thing. It's, it's kind of insane. And, and that's a big part of what we do in dispatch too, is we, are tracking weather, you know, we're tracking storms, we're keeping track of where all these things go through because we get a lot of fires that way. Oh yeah. And you guys are a critical uh, information board as well too. If we don't know what's going on with the weather in the morning briefing, then well, you know, if we, or something changes in that forecast, like a red flag warning decides to come through 
or you have some sort yeah. of microburst or something like that. We need to know about that. And we rely on you guys critically for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice. So let's go into a little bit behind the scenes action with dispatch. What's an average day in dispatch for you? Um, so for me, uh, on the IA floor, a typical day, I mean, as I said, we're customer service. So number one thing we're going to do if there's not a fire is we're going to track resources. So, you know, most of our resources in our area are going to call in when they come in service in the morning and they're going to tell us if they're at station or if they're headed to a project or whatever, and they're going to give us their staffing. And then from there, we're going to track them wherever they go. So if that's a cutting project, then we're going to make sure we have a medevac site for that project. Um, every project we have in our zone, we predetermined, figure out closest hospital, closest medevac, closest life flight, everything. So that if there were an accident, we can, you know, help as much as we possibly can to streamline the, the process and everything. Um, we're going to, you know, as we said, weather, we're going to keep track of what the weather is, make sure everybody has that information and that it's passed out. And then we're going to communicate with the DOs. We're going to find out, you know, what staffing needs are, what staffing plans are, um, who's available to go on out of area assignments. If we've got anybody, you know, that we want to send out and it kind of just is all about communication. I mean, I spend a good chunk of the day either on the radio or on the phone for sure. Oh yeah. So as far as resources, you brushed upon it a little bit. As far as resources getting assigned to a fire, let's go for a typical IA. So emerging incident, you're assigning resources to that fire. How does that whole thing go down? Um, so it's going to start with, I'm, I mean, I don't know how everywhere works, but I know specifically for us, we have a lot of mutual aid fires with the counties. I mean, our area is so vast that most of the time our smoke reports, fire reports are going to come from the county. Sometimes they're already on scene. Sometimes they're not. They've just gotten calls. Um, but the first thing we're going to do is kind of to try to determine ownership. Is it on BLM? Is it on BIA? Is it on forest? And then from there, we'll kind of go by closest resources. Um, and obviously always communicating with duty officers too. I mean, they may have a reason that they want a specific resource to go, um, depending on who's staffing, you know, that specific engine or module or crew or whatever that day, maybe why they want to send a specific person to it. But typically it's going to go by closest resources and ownership. Okay. Now you mentioned the mutual aid thing. Um, do you have, I know this is not necessarily, it's not a problem or anything like that, but I know there's a bit of a disconnect between your county and your state uh, resources showing up to fires because usually they have some sort of automatic aid or mutual aid agreement in place and they just show up on your fire. How do you manage those resources? Because usually they aren't talking to you. Um, you know, I will say that we're kind of a unique area, I believe. Um, like I said, I don't have a, I didn't have a crazy amount of fire experience when I got into this, but I know when I originally moved from Washington that, you know, like you said, no one communicated. you you could show up on a state fire or county fire and see the other resource sitting there watching it burn, waiting for it to get to their land because they don't, they don't communicate and they don't work well together. But I will say um, where I am now, that is not the case. I mean, federally speaking and county speaking, we depend on each other heavily and they have all of our frequencies. They communicate with us very well. Um, and we communicate with them, you know, as much as we can as well. And, and we have a really good, you know, communication and understanding kind of back and forth between county resources and us. We don't have a lot of state land in our area. So I'm not sure, you know, that dynamic as far as, you know, that goes. We haven't had a whole lot of that in my experience, but I'm, I know it's dispatch is such a unique thing. I mean, it's so different depending on where you are as to how things kind of run. I got you. Now, what about uh, municipal departments responding? Yeah. Um, so like I said, they're usually, I mean, forest on forest stuff is kind of a little bit different. It'll take them a little bit longer as well to get up. But like on, you know, BLM country, BIA country and stuff, a lot of times they're, they're first. Um, and they are really good about you know, communicating with us where the fire is and who it's on, you know, what they think they need. And, and then, you know, either doing, you know, mutual, mutual responsibility on it once the federal resources get there, or if it's all on federal land, handing it over. I mean, they, they kind of work that out themselves. I gotcha. The 
That's good. Um, I, I know that a lot of places, uh, sometimes the cooperators, they don't really necessarily talk to each other as well as your area. I know the area that I'm in, we talk to each other very well. We have an excellent grounds of communication with each other. So do you have any tips as far as uh, improving those communication skills, maybe with your county or municipal or state lands uh, responses? Um, you know, just kind of, I, I would say for us, what works really well is just, you know, communication from the very beginning. I mean, the second we get a call that, you know, we aren't sure whose ownership it is, or even if we do, we, we call county dispatch, we let them know what we've got going on. Um, they do the same thing. If there's going to be ag burns in an area, they'll call and tell us we do the same thing, you know, just keeping that open line of communication and remembering that we're all on the same team. You know, it's, it, I can see in other areas how it could be easy to get frustrated with each other for lack of communication or, you know, everyone kind of being on different pages or maybe having, you know, different mission objectives for lack of a better term. But, you know, it's, it's just important to communicate all the way around. Oh, absolutely. I highly agree with you there. So as far as the 911 system, too, because that's usually how fires are reported. They get called into 911 unless they have the center manager or not center manager, but the uh, dispatch center's phone number. How does that work? Because I know there's a time delay between the 911 system and the time that we get the phone call for dispatch. So how does that work? You know, on their side of things, I'm not really sure how they I couldn't tell you how the 911 center operates with their um, their reporting system. All I can tell you is that typically as soon as they get a call and have kind of enough information to go on, you know, I mean, versus there's a fire out, you know, you know, looking at this mountain from this direction from approximately this many miles away, you know, they'll try to pinpoint a little bit more and then they'll get back to us. And then we kind of do the same thing, you know, and and yeah, just go back and forth like that, I guess, a little bit until we get the call. Nice. And how does that work? So when you're given that, you, you take that call from the RP, right? Mm-hmm. Or the 911 system, however that's sorted out at that level. How do you guys initiate that lat long or that township and range when you guys give that initial ta- dispatch? Do you have to give like wags or do you guys try and be accurate as possible? <laughs> like how does that work? Uh, you know, it depends on the fire and how specific the information is. Um, if it's someone that's local, like a rancher that can give specific names, they know the area, like the back of their hand, you know, we'll do the best we can to pinpoint as exact as possible. Um, (laughs) if it's, you know, a motorist driving through on a highway and can't tell you what they're by or what's out there or whatever, then half the time, yeah, it's a wag. (laughs) We're just, you know, kind of throwing something out there and hoping that when someone gets close, they'll see the smoke and... (laughs) That'll help. <laughs> Hope for the best. <laughs> yep. Nice. And now, so the initial call comes in, you give out your dispatch. How does that work? Like, how, What is like your run card? Explain what a run card is, actually. Um, Like our, I'm assuming you mean like our initial, like our fire card kind of a thing. Yeah. We call them run cards around here. Uh. But. <laughs> Yeah, that's, again, it's one of those things that's so hard because, you know, everybody does something slightly different. Um, We use IA cards is what we call them. So ours, the first part of the card would be um, kind of the initial lat long guess, um, township range section, that kind of thing. Um, The initial RPs, like kind of name information and, and what they told us, if they described fire characteristics and estimated size, that kind of thing, we're going to fill all that information out. Um, from that point, then we're going to call the DO for that area. If it's the BLM or the forest service, whatever, and kind of determine where they would go from there. Cause ultimately, you know, it's their decision who they want to send, how they want to send it kind of a thing. We're just kind of helping make that happen. Um, once they say who they want to send or say, you know, we can't get a hold of them, but we know it's probably on them. We'll call, like I said, the closest resource that belongs to them um, and have them head that way. Then it's kind of, you know, it's, it's that initial rush of getting all of that stuff done. And then most everywhere out here, you're going to have an hour to hour lag time of, you know, driving for them to get to wherever this fire is. Um, And that's kind of when everything dies down. Nice. So as far as uh, response levels, uh, how do you guys dictate that? Is that a conversation between the center and the DO or is that 
in combination with uh, National Weather Service to dictate your level of response. Say, all right, so we have a low uh, response level, so we're going to send one engine for this area. Or we have an extreme rating where we're going to send automatically one helicopter, two engines, and a hand crew. How does that work out? How does that whole thing shake down? Um, you know, it's kind of different for for everyone and, and whatnot. Um, I don't know exactly what goes into the higher level of the decision-making process there, but I know on a day-to-day basis, we're going to base it off of weather indices. So um, we'll, we have, you know, all our rod stations and stuff like that, and we'll we'll do, we'll pull those reports in the afternoon. Um, and based on what those numbers look like with that, you know, fire danger ratings and all that, that's going to dictate RPL levels for, or, you know, response, le- sorry, response levels for that area as to who we send, what we send, that kind of thing. And then also availability of resources. I mean, it's nice to look at a book and say, you know, oh, if we're in a low response level, it's this, if we're in a medium, it's this, but you know, we, we may be in a medium response level at that time, but only have enough resources to send a low response kind of a thing. So it, it just kind of depends on the time of year, the resources available, et cetera, et cetera. I gotcha. And now as far as ordering, like say we need extra resources on there, but you haven't gotten a size up yet. Is that make your job difficult as far as getting additional resources? Yes. So I know you had, you know, one of your questions you'd kind of thrown out earlier was, you know, why is a good size up important? Um, a good size up is important for getting those other things. I mean, it's important for a lot of reasons, but the main reason would be if you need other things, specifically aircraft, we have to be able to give some information to get those things. Um, we don't have, like in our dispatch area, we don't have our own aircraft. So if we're getting any, we have to order it from someone else. And they're going to want to know, you know, specifically values at risk. You know, what what is at risk that you need this for? Because they're trying to prioritize who they're going to send this to anyways. You know, if there's other fires going on, they don't want to send it to the one that doesn't give any information. They want to send it to the one that's telling you it's threatening homes or, you know, it's, there's more values at risk, essentially. Kind of a means of justifying your actions on a fire as far as ordering aviation resources. I know that, you know, oftentimes in the desert, at least, or grass, aviation is what saves the day typically, uh, Mm -hmm. even in the timber sometimes. But that good size up, helps justify those means so explain to us what a good what is a quality size up for you what is going to be the most yeah go ahead sorry um oh it's okay um you know a quality size up for us is going to be you know primarily i don't want to bother you if you're just getting on scene of a fire i mean obviously i want you once you have the time to tell me as much information as possible i want you to tell me and, and kind of what you need so that we can get moving on it. Cause you know, I mean, as you said, there's a lot of working parts. And so once we know what we need, we can get heading in that direction. But the number, the main three things, regardless of what you're ordering, I need right away are the name of your incident, um, accurate location, um, lat long, and, you know, given as accurately as possible. And sometimes you're on something that's moving really quickly and you may not know where your point of origin is, but at least, you know, something to kind of make sure we're in the correct area. And then a guess, a guess on size. Um, from there, you know, if you need to get back to us in a little bit, cause it's really moving and you're getting busy or, you know, whatever it may be, that's completely fine. But those are the three main things that I want, no matter how big or small or fast or slow moving this incident is. Um, and then if it is a fast moving incident and you're going to be ordering a lot of stuff, then that value, the risk definitely comes into play. Okay. And now what about, uh, what are like some typical values at risk that we're going to be encountering? This is more geared towards a discussion geared towards our uh, more entry level IC5s or IC4 maybe. Like what are some like surefire ways of getting the things that you need, like uh, cultural resources, um, habitat resources, obviously structures threatened. That's a huge resource. But what are some other things? Yeah. um, You know, those are going to be your primary right away things, structures threatened, um, cultural sites, if you know they're there, threatened. um, Those things are definitely going to be main priority. Um, Obviously, human life right along there with it. Um, If you've got an area and it's prime hunting season and you think that there's 
going to be a lot of people out there and you don't know how to track them down, that's going to be, you know, something that's really important. And then with the federal government too, um, you'll see sage grouse habitat being a priority a lot. Yep. Uh, spotted owl, that kind of thing. Those are all going to come into play as well. T&E is a threatened and endangered species, of course. So for those guys, guys and girls that don't know. Okay. And now as far as like communication tools, because if we don't get the communication to you in a timely fashion, we don't get what we need, right? So there's a two-way street here. So mm-hmm. as far as tools for improving your communication skills, what do you got for us? Like what are some tips and tricks that we can facilitate your job being easier? Right. Which um, will then facilitate you know, our job being easier as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, for me, especially still kind of, you know, being new to this as well, um, I would say the one thing that really helps me is uh, when you're, especially like if you're reading me a list of things you need, you've already kind of figured it out um, and you're coming back to me to, to get me that information. Or if you're just reading me your size up or whatever, um, read slowly. <laughs> I know, you know, that may sound kind of, you know, minor there, but that's a huge thing because I'm either writing or typing everything that you're saying. And um, the slower you read it to me, the easier it is for me to make sure I don't miss anything. Um, it's not lost in translation. Translation, And then, you know, not every time, obviously, your radio transmission is coming through clearly. So sometimes trying to decipher that on top of, you know, being staticky can be a bit hard. Um, and then, Reading, I don't care what orientation I get a lot long in. I mean, everybody's GPSs operate slightly differently. Um, but reading those clearly and then, you know, I, I know that the one thing that really helps me and that I kind of, you know, try to tell people too if they're asking about it is um, instead of saying like 108 degrees, say 108 degrees you know, or 48, you know, because sometimes those numbers, they kind of blend. So if you say, instead of saying 108, you say 108, or instead of 57, you say 57, you know, that really helps me make sure that my numbers are correct. And I'll try to read them back to you that way too, to make sure that there's nothing lost in translation. Gotcha. And now when you're explaining the decimal points in your Latin long too, do you like it when someone says dot or decimal? Um, I prefer decimal. I, I don't, you know, if someone says dot or point or anything else, it, I mean, I can, I can work with that just fine too. Um, decimal sometimes is just a little bit clearer, I think, because it's a longer of a word. So if something does break out around then I can typically tell that that's why, where you're trying to put that. So like a good size up for you would be, uh, all right, approximate location is going to be three, nine decimal seven, eight, six by one, one, nine decimal three, eight, zero, nine or something like that. Correct. Okay. So clarification for you guys say it like that kind of, well, according to your (laughs) dispatch center, of course there, everybody's going to want a different Latin long format. So go according to your dispatch. This is specific to region two. So keep that in mind. So what are some other tools of communication that we can improve on? What is like some common denominators as far as uh, communication flaws that you've seen? Um, I would say, you know, the, the only, the, the big gap between us and then the guys on the ground. Um, and I will say our area is very good at it, but when I've been other places or talked to dispatchers from other places, um, remembering to include your dispatch in your AARs, whether it's for a large incident or if you have a, you know, medical incident or something like that, you know, I don't think people purposely forget dispatch by any means, but I think sometimes, you know, you, you focus on the people that you were physically there or that you maybe feel, you know, were the most, you know, that, that, that you saw kind of a thing. Um, but we want to continue to get better at our jobs too and, and help the best way that we can possible. I mean, like I said, we're there for you. So if you're doing AARs, you know, and you think your dispatcher might be able to make it or, you know, at least giving them a phone call and letting them know what was said during that AAR um, is huge. And then, uh, just remembering to check in, you know, we, you know, in our dispatch center, we obviously track you in the computer, but we also have a giant board, you know, essentially a map of our entire zone. And every time a resource calls us and gives us where they're going in an ETA, we move them there on the board. And we're, we're constantly trying to make sure that, you know, we're keeping that up to date. So if your dispatch center calls you and you're like, gosh, I'm only 10 minutes late or whatever, just just remember they're, they're checking in on you and they're, you know, trying to do their keep up their end of the bargain here too and make sure everyone's okay. So, well, I think it's important for accountability as well. I mean, that's, that's what that system is in place for. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So if something were to go awry in the field, you guys are tracking us down. We're trying for (laughs) sure. at least. But it's important, (laughs) like say if there's a MVA, a a vehicle accident or something like that, and you were involved in and you had no radio commo, at least the last place that you checked in from is a rough location of where you were last at. So then we could send people to help. Absolutely. And, and, you know, knowing when you're actually late. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of, we don't expect, you know, a down to the minute ETA or ETE on when you're going to be somewhere. But if you're, you know, our typical rule of thumb for us is a half hour. So if you said you were going to be checking in at noon and it's 1230 and we still haven't heard from you, that's when we're going to be, you know, trying to call your cell phone, trying to call you on the radio. If we really can't get through to you after a while, call on your duty officer. Cause we take it seriously. I mean, we take safety seriously and, you know, I mean, nine times out of 10, it's not going to be anything wrong, but we want to make sure that it's not that one time when something actually did happen that, you know, we're just like, Oh, it's fine. Like we want to make sure we're taking care of it. Okay. No, that's good. That's a good pointer for our people out in the field there. That there's a reason for this. We're not just trying, they're not just trying to annoy you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of uh, accidents and stuff like that, so let's talk about the medical aspect of dispatch. What do you got for us? Um, our dispatch center, we don't, you know, we don't handle any type of that stuff, you know, on a regular basis. We aren't a emergency dispatch center. Um, so if, you know, we get a call saying something's going on. I mean, we're going to get you what you say you need. If you say you need a life flight or medevac or whatever, we're going to go from there to get you what we can. But we're also going to be calling, you know, the sheriff's 911 dispatch to get an ambulance and all that rolling that way. And, and you know, make sh- just basically making sure you get everything you need. But we aren't, you know, the main dispatch center, I guess, that would handle all of that kind of stuff. So if there was an incident on an in- with incident within an incident on a fire or a project or something like that, that kind of there's a, a big effort to coordinate between the 911 system and you guys. Correct. Gotcha. So we're going to, you know, I mean, we're going to try to get you what you need. And, and, you know, if I guess my main advice there would be it's better to um, not need it and have it <laughs> kind of a thing. So, you know, if you, I guess I would say like the number one thing that I've never, luckily myself, have never had to handle a medical situation, but we do a lot of practicing, especially early season for exactly that type of situation. Um, If you tell me that you need a medevac ship or a life flight, I'm still going to call and have an ambulance heading your way. I'm still, you know, I'd, I'd rather send all that stuff and cancel it later and make sure that that person is covered than to be like, Oh, they said it was fine. You know, kind of a thing. And and not send it. Yeah, I totally understand. Um, I'm kind of opinionated on the subject, so I always err on the side of uh, order heavy because it's always easier to de-escalate a situation than it is to escalate something. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, at, yeah, absolutely. That is 110%, you know, true on all of that. It Life is something that, you know, I take very seriously as well. I'm sure everyone out there does. I mean, you know, especially for us. I mean, we make it an effort to know all our resources. So, you know, if something happens and it's our guys in the field, you know, I mean, it's, it's a whole new personal level too. We know, we know everyone, you know, and we want to take care of our guys. Oh, absolutely. So aside from that, what about the, like the logistical aspect of dispatch? Because I know you guys, at least when I'm calling into dispatch, um, if I need like a hundred man kit, which we have these things called hundred man kits around here. Uh, it's QBs, MREs, stuff like that, batteries, toilet paper. Uh, how does that work for you guys? Um, so if it's kind of a slower time of year, you're going to call in and you'll talk to me still. I'm in our center, you know, the, the, the regular initial attack floor. They may have some standing hand handling um, or, you know, someone that they maybe kind of depend more on for that. Um, but until expanded setups, it's, it's going to be us. Um, once expanded is set up, um, so dispatching, there's, I mean, three main tiers of dispatching, I guess I would say. So like if you're talking like large scale type ordering stuff, um, whether it's supplies, resources, whatever it may be, um, you're going to call us and tell us what you need. Um, 
if we don't have it locally, so we'll look, you know, through all our avenues locally and see if we have it. If we don't have it locally, then we can first call our neighbors. Um, if none of our neighbors have it, then we're going to go to our GAC. Um, GAC is going to do a little bit more checking, kind of same thing, make sure that none of our neighbors have anything and whatnot. Um, and then if they, if we still don't have it, you know, cause again, dispatching is all typically all about closest resources. So if we still, they're seeing that no, no one has it around there, then the GAC is going to send it up to the NIC. Um, from there, the NIC, you know, I couldn't even begin to tell you how they make all of their decisions as to where they send things and stuff like that. But they're going to look around nationwide, see what's available where, and then they're going to turn around and send that order from us back down to another gap, you know. So Rocky Mountain area, we may send it up to the NIC, and then they say, oh, okay, the Pacific Northwest has this available. They're going to send it back down to them, and then they're going to fill that order. Okay. That's, yeah, it seems like there's a escalation there too. Like if this is a, 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 a an incident that's going to turn into a type one incident, obviously it's going to skip some steps there just because the, I guess the scope of things, but uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it's that span of control thing. It's kind of interesting to hear that aspect of it. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, there's so many working parts um, and, and moving pieces that, you know, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you just, you my my level of it and then where I send it to next and then kind of just you know I mean there are amazing people out there and they make sure it happens <laughs> they they get stuff done that's for sure yep for sure <laughs> okay so um as far as pet peeves of your uh, pet peeves of a dispatchers what is like some of those things that just piss you off give us some <laughs> examples so we don't do that oh gosh I mean I'm a pretty easygoing person um, not a lot really riles me or gets me too worked up. Um, but the, just the, you know, the number one thing I would say that, you know, is going to kind of frustrate me <laughs> would be later missed check-ins at the end of the night. Um, so we, we stay in dispatch until you make it home. So if you're on a fire until 10 and then for whatever reason you're, you know, you've got to drive home or whatever, I'm, we're, one of us or multiple of us is staying in dis in the center until you make it back and, a lot of times if it's later traveling like that and we don't have any other fires going on, it, it's not like, you know, we've got a lot of activity going on and that's just one thing. I mean, we're, we're kind of waiting for you to make it back. So we want to make sure you make it home safe. So if you get home and forget to call us for a half hour or don't call us and go home and get in bed. And then, you know, we kind of hit that point where we start calling you and no one's answering, you know, that's, we're still there. We're still waiting for you. So I guess that would be, my number one thing, um, not saying that there aren't probably other things that kind of, you know, happen from here or there that we're like, oh, come on. But I can't think of anything major off the top of my head. No, that's an interesting point that you brought up because that was one of the lessons learned that I had from last season is that if you know you're going to have an incident that's going to go more than 24 hours and you need resources at dispatch through the night for to facilitate that operation order them ahead of time, like make sure they can provide the staffing ahead of time or else it's too late. And they're going to be some really ticked off dispatchers. Oh, absolutely. You know, and if, if we talked about this the other day at work, actually, like if, if a fire is running and gunning, it's, it's really moving and stuff. We're going to stay, we're going to be there to make sure that everything is covered and taken care of. But if it's, you know, you're bedding down and you just don't have cell service or, you know, it's something like that. We are going to have a night dispatcher in there just for safety reasons to make sure. Um, but it's going to be, or, you know, we need to call around to find someone that can do that so that we can still come to work the next day and cover our regular shift too. Um, I think sometimes people forget that as a, you know, a dispatch center that we aren't just dispatching one forest or one, you know, local unit. We have, um, you know, multiple forests, BLM, you know, BIA, we have multiple resources that we're taking care of. So if we're staying late for one and we're, sh we're shorthanded, I still have to be at work the next day, you know, it, kind of a thing. And, and we do the best we can to mitigate that and help each other out. But when people forget to call us, that would be a pet peeve or yeah. Like saying, um, yeah, no, we know we, we typically try to ask, so no, we don't need night staffing. And then, you know, 10 o'clock rolls around and it's 
okay, we're, you know, going to stay out here now or, you know, kind of a thing. Just like, okay, (laughs) all right, we'll figure this out kind of a thing. Yeah, there's definitely lessons learned from my uh, experience over the summer. And then I never made that mistake again, I can tell you that. But it was just like one of those things where I was like kind of so engaged with what was going on that I just totally forgot to do this. So I had some pretty ticked off dispatchers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, I I appreciate that you, you know, took that to heart. We kind of joke about that, too. We'll have, you know, injured firefighters come in and stuff and they'll get like, are you kidding me? This happens or why does someone do this? And then go right back out and then you know we you know we give them a hard time later because they did the same thing because they did it all over again (laughs) yep oh man well it sounds like you guys got a lot of organized chaos in the dispatch center and there's a lot of moving parts like do you happen to you don't you don't typically work aircraft desk do you um i have my aircraft dispatcher task book open um, so I did spend a little bit of time behind our aircraft desk this summer. Um, holy cow, that's a whole nother world for me. Um, nice. I didn't, you know, I didn't have enough experience really other than, you know, a look a plane, you know, or that helicopter's dropping right now to, you know, kind of understand a lot about how we order or why we order certain types of aircraft for different things. So that's been a really awesome learning process to figure out, um, And I didn't have to do any this year, um, but like the process of how intense it is to order like a TFR (laughs) or, you know, that kind of thing. Holy cow, talk about moving parts. Or if you're in a military like deconfliction zone and you have to make sure that they know what's going on, that's there's definitely a lot going on back there. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. But then again, I'm boots on the ground guy, so... (laughs) I, yeah, it's just like the it's it's just good to get this conversation through to the firefighters. It's for peace of mind and to give a little bit of insight as to what you guys go through, guys and girls go through in dispatch. And at the end of the day, you guys are facilitating what we need when we need it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I can tell you that I never thought much of dispatch, you know, or, or especially early years in fire. I don't think, you know, because you're not typically the one communicating with them. I mean, your your boss maybe or whatever. But I, I don't think I, I ever really thought about, you know, what dispatch did. I mean, I know we checked in with them and I know, you know, basic information, but it was never something I really thought about. And I think that's kind of the case for a lot of people is it's not, you know, an intentional, you know, like forgetting or, you know, non-communication between or whatever I think a lot of times it's just you don't even really realize they're there because you don't you don't see them and we really encourage boots on the ground in our area whether they're visiting our area or whether they're regular resources of ours to come in and check out dispatch and I would encourage that for anyone if you're in an area where you are close to your dispatch center or are going to go buy it go you know meet your dispatchers we love putting a face to a name we love seeing you guys and getting to know you. And we love to kind of explain what we do. I mean, I know a lot of times when people haven't been to a dispatch center before and they come in, they see our big map or, you know, they hear the radios going off with everyone's traffic or, you know, whatever it may be. They kind of, you know, a lot of times are just like, wow, they, you know, no one really realizes. And I know I sure didn't. I think you, uh, as a boot on the ground, I think you kind of lose the ability to keep in mind the scope of what dispatch is dealing with you know you might be hitting one repeater that's going all the way to your dispatch center but in reality that dispatcher is hearing all the traffic all the resources everything going on and it's just it's got to be chaotic oh absolutely and you know i mean sometimes especially on like weekends and stuff because you know our repeaters the way that we're set up is we don't track you know, regular rec resources, we track fire and fuels. So, you know, primary and secondary fires is is the resources we track, but we can hear everyone. So if, you know, there's a lot of, you know, rec traffic going on on like a holiday weekend or, you know, campground issues or whatever it may be, we hear all that too. So kind of trying to, you know, filter what you're listening to, we kind of, we call it the ear. I mean, you kind of, the longer you spend in there, the more you can either recognize people's voices that you are kind of, you know, waiting for, or, you know, filter some, filtering some of that out. Cause it can get really loud. <laughs> I bet. Now, do you guys deal with, uh, LEOs as well? The law enforcement side of things too? Um, 
We don't dispatch our law enforcement officers. They have their own dispatch center along with, you know, other types of law enforcement or kind of how they're dispatched. But if we need them for investigation purposes or, you know, because there's, you know, maybe it is a crime scene or something like that, then yeah, we'll call them and get them headed that way. That's awesome. Uh, I don't know how the LEO side of things work. Uh, Maybe I should get an LEO on here, pick their brain. You know, that would be really interesting. Um, One of ours is local, so I've met him quite a bit and he's a really awesome guy. But we kind of joke that, you know, they have their own kind of underground world because we we don't see them or hear from them very often. Yeah, it's it's they're kind of like the hidden hidden warriors, I guess, too. I guess. Well, we are in a sense, too, as well, but they're the more hidden people. You don't really see them. And usually, typically with BLM law enforcement, I know that they have a lot of coverage for one officer and that's it. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, That's absolutely true. Oh yeah. Well, anyways, I mean, that's a pretty epic insight as to what goes on in dispatch. Um, what else do you have to add? You got anything else to add? Um, you know, (laughs) look through this real quick. I don't, I don't have anything super specific other than, you know, kind of like you touched on, you know, just like your resources, you guys are going to do things and operate, you know, a little bit differently everywhere. Dispatch centers are the same way. I mean, the way we do something could be completely different than the way your guys do something. So, you know, I I guess I would just use if you if something I said, which sorry, I'm kind of scattered, but if something I said, you know, triggered something where it made you have a question, you know, contact your dispatch center and, and ask them how they do that or how they make that decision or, you know, whatever that may be. I'm still pretty base level here, but I can tell you that spending a year in a dispatch center is a very high learning curve um, for everybody. And, and, you know, I don't know if apprentice programs everywhere do this, but I know our apprentices through our area come through for at least a two week assignment in our dispatch center as part of like their, you know, checklist for their apprenticeship program. And, I encourage it. You know, if you, if you can get in even for just a few days, spend some time in a dispatch center. Cause it's, it's going to really help you, especially, you know, if you're working on your IC stuff and you see how the ordering side of thing work, things work, or, you know, if you're just still kind of learning how to communicate, you know, getting comfortable talking on the radio, kind of, that's a quick crash course for sure. Oh yeah. It's a uh, push the talk button, not a push the think button. Exactly. And I can tell you that I'm, that's been something that's been pretty, you know, a learning curve for me too. I'm a little long winded or I'm not good at finding the exact word I want to describe something. And when you've got a lot of stuff going on, you got to kind of articulate <laughs> real clearly and sometimes pretty short. So it's, it's good practice. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, communication is absolutely critical in this line of work, both from both ends, from dispatch and the boots on the ground aspect as well, because, you know, good communication, concise communication turns into efficiency and safety by a byproduct of that. So it's important that you guys get your communication skills down. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, sweet. Organized chaos from the dispatch side of the world. Pretty epic. Um. Yes. And actually, I thought of one last thing. Let's hear it. Um, I don't know if it was this year as well or not, but I know that um, one of the things we talk about in dispatch a lot is that the number one UTF or unable to fill order in the nation is for dispatchers. So we are on a whole nationwide, very short staffed in our dispatch centers. Most dispatch centers have positions that they're not able to fill, sometimes for long amounts of time. So if it's something that you're kind of interested in getting into, go talk to your dispatch center or if there's somewhere that you think you may want to live, um, go check it out because there are opportunities there. And, you know, most everyone is going to be really gracious and and want you to come see it. So, you know, if it's something you think you even might be interested in, go take a look. Awesome. There we go. And it's secondary fire. So if you're a perm already, you can keep continuing that first retirement so keep that in mind absolutely well right on lauren uh so at the end of the show i think that's about the tie-in point for us um at the end of the show i'd like to give you the opportunity to give a shout out to a homie a hero or a mentor so 
go as many as you want. Send it. Oh, man. Um, well, I would say that for me, I would you know like to thank all of my leadership and my center that's really encouraged me and, and helped me grow as a person and as a dispatcher. Um, and then I'd like to thank all of you guys. I mean, you're kind of why we're here. We, you know, we really enjoy it. So thanks for doing you. <laughs> right on. And now where can we find you on the socials? Oh, um, I'm on Instagram as Smokey's best friend. And then on Facebook as Lauren Bellinger. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, Lauren, I want to just say thank you for doing what you do and facilitating all the stuff that we need on the ground. I definitely appreciate what, what you guys do. Awesome. Well, thank you. We appreciate you too. Yeah. Well, there you guys go. There's a little insight from dispatch. Hope you guys enjoyed Lauren. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Later guys. All right, there you guys go. Episode number 20 is in the books with Lauren Bellinger. Lauren, thanks for stopping by and uh, telling us a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes in Dispatch. It's pretty interesting stuff, and uh, I'm definitely thankful for it because without you guys, well, we wouldn't be able to do a darn thing on the ground. So thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Um, yeah, if you guys got any questions, feel free to hit her up at Smokey's Best Friend on the old IG. Ask her some questions. I think we uh, covered a lot of good topics, how to communicate better, the importance of a good size up, and things to not tick off your dispatcher. So get in there, get in your dispatch center, check them out, say hi, be friendly. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Take care.